go. Uh, last weekend, we started with year eight as a church, and we have had a lot of changes, a lot of changes uh, since then. But one of the things that has remained the same since day one, one of the things that will remain the same until Jesus comes back is that we look to the Bible in a way that we look to no other books or no other resources. There's a lot of great books out there. There's a lot of great resources out there, a lot of great teaching out there, a lot of great guidelines out there. But from the beginning and into the future, we look to the scriptures in a way that is different than any of them. And what we're going to be doing through this series, the one that started last week and is continuing for the next several weeks, is we're going to try to answer the question, why? You know, why is it that of all those great resources out there, we look to the Bible the way that we do? And we started this last week. Last week, we took a look at some of the more objective things that make the Bible unique, that make it a one-of-a-kind book. No book has been translated into more languages. No book has been published more times. And no book is at a bigger impact on the world stage. What we're going to do this week is we're going to look into the Bible's origins. Why did the Bible become the Bible? In fact, there's a place to write this down in your notes. Uh, if you want to take out your green notes, uh, green sheet, green insert. There's a lot of inserts, by the way, in your bulletin, isn't there? We'll talk about that as time goes on. And don't let it freak you out. This one's a double-sided today. We're going to be going fast. So if you are looking at noon, we'll, we'll get it done, all right? 2,000, 3,000 years of history going to happen in 35 minutes. So what am I doing talking about that? Let's go. All right, here we go. First thing to write down. How did this particular collection of ancient documents become the Bible? That's the question that's going to frame today. Of all those documents that were out there, how did this particular uh, collection of ancient documents become the Bible? Now, there's an author. His name is Dan Brown. He took a shot at this in his book, The Da Vinci Code. He did it through one of his characters, and he said, all right, I can answer that question. Here's how the Bible came to be. It's this simple. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. That's how he answers the question. Now, if you've ever read any of Dan Brown's works, you need to know that he's writing fiction. He's writing a novel. It confused so many of our friends because they're like, I didn't know this. I said, because it's not true. Fact check him. Fact check not just the Bible stuff. Fact check everything he says. He's writing fiction. He's writing a novel. Now, I agree with the first sentence. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Nobody teaches that. Nobody teaches that. But I couldn't disagree more with that next statement that the Bible as we know it today was collated by the Roman Emperor Constantine. It's not like that. I tried to think, what's, a, what's an example I can give you? I think it's kind of like this. Anyone ever heard of Mount Everest? When did Mount Everest become the highest mountain in the world? You know, was it when the British said so? If so, what Britain said? You know, because they had all this whole process. Go ahead, just even Wikipedia right now if you want. The, when did Mount Everest become the highest? Did, when, when the first person who was a local said, I think that's the tallest one. Was that when it was the highest? Was it, was it when the first surveyors came and said, no, you're right, it is that one? You know, when exactly was it? Or was it just the highest? I want to present to you the Bible's more like that. It's like that. That's not going to sit well with some of you, but that's more how it is. Um, the next thing I want to say here in relation to that, our one-of-a-kind book has a one-of-a-kind story. Our one-of-a-kind book has a one-of-a-kind story. The Bible was collated, if you will, through a process that involved hundreds of diverse voices over the course of hundreds of years. 
And the process itself, we're going to come back to this, the process itself, I believe, speaks to who God is. And again, we'll come back to that. Well, any journey into the Bible's backstory requires a working knowledge of the word canon. If you start to study the Bible, where did it come from? The word canon is going to show up. And when I hear the word canon, that's my mental picture. Maybe that was some of your picture. And you might be thinking the Bible is a canon. Are you saying the Bible is a weapon? Well, it certainly has been misused as a weapon, hasn't it? A weapon against people. It's also been underutilized as a weapon. A weapon for ourselves to be used against our own sin, against our own stupidity. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the Bible as a canon. When we talk about the Bible as a canon, we're talking about two things. Here they are, for you to write down. The word canon is a Greek word for rule, as in standard, as in rule of life. And that word canon is applied to the Bible in two ways. The first way is this. It refers to the holy scriptures and how they served as our standard for belief and practice. It's a rule in that the holy scriptures are our rule of life. As Christians, we look to the Bible as a canon that way. It is our rule of life. Now, the second definition is also in play. A canon can also refer to an authorized collection. It can also mean that. A canon is the authorized collection. So in that way, the individual books of the Bible, because the Bible is a collection of documents, the individual books of the Bible have been uniquely affirmed by God's people throughout the ages. In other words, the 66 books in the Bible canon are the only 66 books that belong there. That's what we believe as Christians. We believe there aren't any that should have been left out. There aren't any that should be included. Now, some of you might be saying, that's not fair. I didn't get a vote. Let me, let me give you this example. Let's say that you're a Beatles fan, Beatles music. Let's say you're a fan of the Beatles music, all right? And so you say, there's a Beatles canon. There are songs that are Beatles songs, all right? Now, there might be some of you who agree on all of them, these are all in the Beatles canon. There might be some that are a little disputed. Well, Paul McCartney wrote this. Does it count as a Beatles song? There might be some that are on the margins. But I think most Beatles fans are going to say, here's the Beatles canon. Now, you might be a Monkees fan. Anyone ever heard of the Monkees? All right? Monkees. And you might be thinking, hey, come on, why didn't you include the Monkees in the Beatles canon? There's four white guys. They sing. They were in the late 60s. You know, why not? Why not daydream believer? Why is that not in the Beatles canon? I want to vote. I want, to, I want it to be in there. I want you to change your criteria so I can fit it in. You don't do that. You, you can't do that. This, this, hopefully this makes a little bit of sense. Well, when you get into the canonization process, if you can even call it a process, one of the things you're going to find is this. The more research you do, the more you're going to discover there is to learn. You know, I used to think it's just me. I end up thinking that a lot on things. I'm like, is it just me? Because it's, I hear some people saying it's the 5th century, all right? That's when the Bible became the canon. I hear other people saying the 4th century. I hear other people saying the 3rd century. I hear other people saying, which one is it? Am I, just a, am I just dumb that I can't figure this out? Well, it's because the more you start to research how the Bible became the Bible, you realize it wasn't one event. It wasn't one group of people. It wasn't even a process as we understand most processes. It was a sovereign work of God. And, and, and again, let me, let me dig into that as, as we go along here. It, it is not an exaggeration to say that a lifetime is not long enough to discover all that there is to know about the Bible's backstory. 
Here's how one of my sources put it. One of my sources said this, that writing books is not the same as collecting them. And neither is writing nor collecting the same as starting to treat them as Scripture. Here's the thing about the Bible. All three of these overlap. All three of these processes overlap. The Bible grew in a most untidy way. I wonder if this guy is British. Most untidy way. And no amount of wishful thinking can make it otherwise. The outline that I'm going to present to you in this limited time we have this morning, it is ridiculously compressed. The outline I'm going to give you, even though it's a two-sider, it is ridiculously compressed. And my hope today is to just at least inspire you. If you've only heard there's one side of the story, it was Constantine. My hope is that you at least go, okay, maybe it was more than that. And then I can point you to some other resources that can help. Some other resources. Two that I want to highly recommend are study Bibles. Here's two that I really like. The ESV Study Bible, the NIV Study Bible. Each one of these documents, what they can do is they have extra articles that'll go into more depth than I can today. They'll take each one of the books and say, oh, here's some reasons why we believe it was this author, this date. You want to start at least having a couple resources like that so when you hear something like, hey, it was all Constantine, you can go, it's not that simple. Not that simple. All right. Let's move as quickly as we can through my ridiculously compressed outline. Let's start with the Old Testament. By the way, I did make a note to self. When sometime in the distant future we come back to this topic, we're going to do Old Testament, New Testament on two different days. Oh, I'll talk fast again. Thanks for you who are signing over there. I, good luck. I told her her hands are going to get tired today. Her hands are going to get tired. Here we go. Old Testament canon in 10 minutes. Old Testament canon. How did the Old Testament become the Old Testament? Well, first God spoke to people. God spoke to people. The God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is a God who actively engages his creation. He is a self-revealing God. He speaks, he acts, he does stuff in history. He wants us to know about who he is. And very early on, next bullet, some people began writing things down. They began recording the history. They began recording the words. And this happened very early. There's a popular misconception regarding the ancient world in regards to how truth was handed down. Oral tradition was very important. Oral tradition initially was even looked at as more authoritative than written. But this was a literate culture, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Here's another example of that from one of my sources, talking about the literacy of the Old Testament and New Testament times. All of the cultures which produced the Old and New Testaments, they were literate cultures, not in the sense that literacy was very widespread, but there was a large elite group of people who were highly literate. They produced sophisticated writing for their contemporaries to read. Much of the Old Testament comes to us from the hands of such people, and it is of a high order of literary excellence. The reference that's in your notes there, Exodus 24.4 says this, Moses wrote down the words of the Lord early, early, early in the B.C.s. Moses is writing things down. Now, not all written documents were considered equal. There was a lot of stuff being written down. Not all were considered equal, which brings us to our next bullet point. Some documents were recognized as sacred almost immediately. There were some documents when people heard them, when they read them, they said there's something different about this one. Let me give you an example of that in play. If you have your Bibles, let's open up 2 Kings chapter 22. As we're opening up, I want to let you know that we, each week we believe so strongly in the Bible that we put a stack of them at that table and at that table, and they're there for you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one absolutely free. Take it. 
There's nothing to sign. Uh, don't have to let us know. That's what they're there for. All right, 2 Kings chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Let's take a look at this. Again, this is an example of someone recognizing that there's something different about the documents that we now consider the Scripture. Chapter 22, verse 1 of 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. Let's skip down to verse 2 because I don't want to try to pronounce those names. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Did he do just what was right in his own eyes? No, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he followed completely the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Some of you are going to hate what I'm about to say. Let me read it the way I wrote it. Some of you are going to hate this. There is a direct correlation between recognizing God's rule and your willingness to live under it. Let me say this again. There is a direct correlation between recognizing God's rule and your willingness to live under it. I would have hated that when I was a skeptic. I would have hated to hear that. So what you're telling me is I'm going to recognize the word of God if I already believe in God? I'm not that's what the Bible's telling us. If we're to believe in that God, that's what it's saying. Let's fast forward. Fast forward 18 years to verse 8. Now between what we just read... And what we're about to read here, 18 years have transpired between the verse where we were and verse 8, jumping ahead. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Hilkiah, the high priest, says this, I found this book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Well, okay, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, the high priest now passed along a book that he found. Where did he find the book? In the temple. That's significant. Already at this period of history, there were some books that were being set aside as sacred. And these, this particular, particular collection of books, because it would have been scrolls, they didn't have books like we have now, so this collection of scrolls was grouped together and was put in the temple. They said there's something different about these books. Well, what happened was that the books were in the right place. The books were in the temple. The books were being treated as holy at one point in history, but right around the time of Josiah, the kings before him, the kings after him, the books were in the right physical place, but they weren't serving as the rule for the people. They were being neglected. Even though the books were in the right physical place, they weren't being utilized. I was typing those words. I felt some conviction on that. Because how many seasons of my life has the book been in the right place. My Bible is on my nightstand. My Bible is in my office. I had a Bible in my glove box. I had a Bible in my bag. It was in the right place. But there have been seasons in my life where that book not, got neglected, and that's what was going on here. So the high priest finds this collection of documents. He says, look what I found in the temple, and here's what happens when he brings them to Josiah. Let's take a look at this, and this is what I'm saying about this recognition piece, all right? Jumping ahead to verse 10. Then the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest, he's given me this book, and he read from it in the presence of the king. And the king heard the words of this book of the law. He did what? What did he do? He tore his robes. That's a sign of conviction. Like, 
Ah, we've been wrong. We've been neglecting something that we should not have been neglecting. There's a lot of decrees. There's a lot of laws. This one we should not have been neglecting. There's something about these words that are speaking to me in a different way. Now, throughout the centuries, people have utilized objective criteria. Don't hear me wrong in this. It's not that there were no objective criteria applied that got us the Bible. That was very important that they said, who wrote these words? That was very important. When was it written? Very important. There were some of these criteria. Does it, does it fit with the rest? Is the doctrine consistent? That was an important criteria. But more than any of those, and again, you're not going to like this, a lot of you. The number one criteria was, how was it received by the people of God? Did they receive it as God's word? Did it speak to them in a different way? Here's what the author of Hebrews says about the Word of God. This is a different author, different time period. That author says this about the Word of God. He goes, it's alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For a man of God like Josiah or a person of God, the one who says, I want my life rule to be let God rule, these words, they have a different frequency to them than other words. Now, is the word of God limited to the pages of the Bible? No. We're going to look at that in, in week four. But the word of God is uniquely present in this particular collection of ancient documents. That's the primary reason why these books and these books alone are in the Bible. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Now, this is important. You may, not, you may say, they don't speak to me that way. Just bear with me for just a couple minutes here. This is what N.T. Wright like, writes. I love N.T. Wright. He says this. It was the canonical scriptures that sustained the early church in its energetic mission and commitment to radical holiness, a commitment that was startling to the watching pagan world. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. These are the books, the ones in our Bible. These are the books that spoke to those who were willing to be buried alive and thrown to the lions. These are the words that spoke to those who were willing to be persecuted and put to death for their faith. These are the documents quoted by those whose lives most looked like Jesus of Nazareth, Christians who refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. The Christians who turned the other cheek and walked the extra mile. The Christians who gave all that they had to the poor. The Christians that treated women with unparalleled dignity and respect. The Christians who reached out to widows and orphans and others who were marginalized. What were they reading? What were they quoting? They weren't quoting the gospel of Thomas. They weren't reading the gospel of Judas. They were reading these letters. They were quoting these documents right up until their death. One of my sources summed it up like this. He says, long acceptance was nearly everything in the formation of the Bible. What was the number one criteria? What did the people of God do with these words? How did they treat them? That was the number one criteria. Well, by the time of Jesus, books that we now call the Old Testament were already considered sacred. That's really important to know. Was it a Constantine thing with the Old Testament? No. Why? Jesus quoted Scripture. Jesus referred to Scripture. Jesus taught from the Scriptures. Jesus read the Scriptures. By the time of Jesus, there were two collections that were extremely widespread. There was the Hebrew Bible, written in what language? Hebrew. Written in Hebrew. That collection was the same as the books in our Old Testament. 
The same books were in the Hebrew Bible that are in Old Testament. There was also a Greek collection called the Septuagint. And both of these collections predate the birth of Christ. The Septuagint is all of the books in our Old Testament, plus some that we call the Apocrypha. And if you're not familiar with those, I put a little bit more on uh, your blue sheet or your purple sheet. It's on one of those two inserts. The blue one, blue one, thank you. It's on the blue insert. All right, all this to say, my point is, all of the books in our Old Testament canon were already considered sacred in Jesus' day. There's the Old Testament. Ten minutes, let's move on now to the New Testament. All right, I got 15, here we go. Now, we have to start talking about the New Testament by referring to the Old Testament in this. The Old Testament foreshadowed the New. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to read this, doc, this collection of documents that isn't finished. It's not finished yet. It's foretelling of an age to come. It's foretelling of a time when God's going to send his Messiah. It's talking about a new age, a new covenant. So the Old Testament documents themselves say, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. The ESV Study Bible puts it like this. Oh, it's a good quote. I think I put this one in your notes too. The foundation for a New Testament canon, they don't lie, in, as some would assert, in the needs or practices of the church in the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th centuries A.D., but in the gracious purpose of a self-revealing God whose word carries his own divine authority. Just as the new outpourings of divine word revelation accompanied and followed each major act of redemption in the ancient history of God's people, like the covenant of Adam and Eve, the covenant of Abraham, the redemption from Egypt, the establishment of the monarchy, the exile, the restoration. So when the promised Messiah came, a new and generous outpouring of divine revelation necessarily ensued. If that just gave you a headache, let me give you another source. Jesus' storybook Bible. How many of you have read parts of this? Get this book. Seminary students, we love this book, Right? This is great. What this is, it's a collection. It's written really simple. It's showing how Jesus was present in the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks to the coming Messiah and this age to come. I love the sub, kind of subtitle of this. Every story whispers his name. It's a great little resource. It's one of the resources on the yellow sheet there. I encourage everyone to have that. If you want, in fact, I would go this far. If you're not familiar with the Bible, read that first. I would even go that far. Read that one first. It'll give you a big picture understanding of what the Bible is all about. All right, let's talk now about those specific documents that make up the New Testament canon. Here we go. The documents included in the New Testament canon were written within a generation of Jesus. Within a generation of Jesus. Now, you're going to find people that disagree with that. A whole lot of really intelligent people, well-educated people that disagree with that. But may I present to you, there's a whole lot of very well-educated highly intelligent scholars that can make a strong, strong, strong case that every one of the books included in our New Testament were written in the first century. When was Jesus walking the earth? In the first century. Now, it's worth noting, some of these documents are so old, they include eyewitness testimony. Here's an example of that, 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were what? We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Now, like the Old Testament documents, these documents had a self-authenticating nature to them, so much so that next bullet, 
the books that comprise the New Testament canon were affirmed as sacred almost immediately. This is fascinating. If you're a skeptic, do your homework on this one. You're going to find that in the first century AD, you've got the Bishop of Rome. Okay, Middle East is where all this is taking place. You've got, within the first century, you've got a bishop in Rome who's quoting Corinthians to the Corinthians. He's quoting Paul's letter to the Corinthians to the Corinthians in the first century, and he's talking like it's Scripture. In fact, if you take the early church fathers, as they're called, they quoted the New Testament documents so much that 90% of the New Testament can be reconstructed from their quotes. Were these books looked at as different than all other books? Yes. Now, again, if you're a skeptic, and I was, let me show you something. This, this is hard for me to deny. I don't know what, I don't know what else to do with this. This is from 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, you need to know, this, is, this letter was dated between 64 and 67 AD, within 30 years of Jesus' life, all right? This document, remember, it was a separate document. It was a letter. It was a letter that was attributed to Peter, as in disciple of Jesus Peter. And look what Peter says. Within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, says this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother who as in the Paul of the Bible. Peter is testifying to Paul. And what is he saying about Paul? He says this. Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that came from where? God. He's not just saying, hey, Paul is writing some letters. You should be attentive to them. He's saying God gave Paul this wisdom. But it goes even more. He says his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Well, that is an understatement right there. You ever try to read Paul? Great little quotables, all the rest of this stuff. Whoa, what do we do with that? Okay, but that's not what I want to point out. What I want to point out is, look what it says. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the what? Other scriptures. What did Peter just do to Paul's letters? If this is the Old Testament, what did Peter just do to Paul's letters? He just said, they're scriptures. Well, what do you do with that? than to say it wasn't a Constantine thing. It was a 64 to 67 AD thing. People are already looking at particular documents and saying, these aren't like the rest of the letters floating out there. There's something different about these. Um, high schoolers, can you raise your hand? Where's our high schoolers? College students, can you also keep, put your hands up too? Okay, all right, you can put them down. It's your college age. You need to do your homework. Because if it's not, that day has already come, let me tell you what's going to happen. Someday someone's going to stand up to you and they're going to sound really smart. And they're going to be quoting all kinds of sources. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to tell you that the Bible was written, collated by Constantine. And they're going to have all their reasons for that. And they're going to be ready to shoot down anybody that disagrees with them. You can't take a Sunday school understanding of the Bible to college. It'll, you'll get killed. You'll get crushed. So let's grow up right now. Let's get some equipment. I get, every teenager, every young adult, get an ESV study Bible to have on reference. This is just one of a billion books you could have, but at least you'll have one that you could open up and go, hey, wait a minute. There's other really smart people. There's other scholars who see things differently than you. And you may be able to argue better than I can argue, 
Well, that doesn't mean you're right. Now get equipped, you guys. Get, get strong. Get a foundation. And as you dig in, as you do your own homework, and not just the homework that they assign, and, and here's the thing, too. I hope it goes out saying, fact check me. Go out there. Find, facts are our friends. Go out there and find the best of the contrary research. I've been quoting some sources that I don't even agree with everything they say. In fact, I disagree strongly with some of the sources on certain issues. But what are their arguments? Are, do they stand up or not? If you do your homework for yourself, you're going to see this. You're going to see that when it comes to the 27 books of the New Testament, we're talking about the New Testament now, you're going to find that leaders in the Eastern Church and the Western Church, Christians in Africa and Europe and Asia, despite their cultural differences, despite their language differences, despite contextual differences, they rallied around the 27 books of the New Testament like no other documents. They didn't rally around Thomas. They didn't rally around Judas. They rallied around these documents. There were some on the margins where there was a little bit more controversy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none. Romans, none. Boy, and if you just read those books, you'd be in great shape. Well, let me close with this. As I prayed about this week's message, and I said, God, of all the things I could talk about, 3,000 years of history, of all the things I could talk about, what should I talk about? I try to do that each and every week. And I don't use these words lightly that I'm about to use. I think there's a word from God for us today. If it resonates with you, it resonates. Here it is. Just the top. Don't worry about the numbers. And these are my words. This isn't direct from God, but I think God wants to say something to this effect. The Bible's backstory testifies to who God is. God could have done it. If there is a God, that the, and he's the one that the Bible testifies to, he could have done it another way. He could have had gold tablets come down from heaven, and he could have given them to one guy. He could have, over the course of 10 years, said, here's a revelation from me for you, just you, for you to then spread out to everybody else. God didn't do that. This is a deep mind, and I would encourage you to mine that sentence. The Bible's backstory testified to who God is. Here's some teasers in that direction. One of the things that the Bible's story, the way the Bible came together is this. God, he calls and he cares. He's not a God that sits back and lets history do its thing. He speaks to people and he calls them out. He, he speaks to them. That's other bullet. The God of the Bible doesn't just speak to a select few. He doesn't just pick one person in history. He doesn't even pick just righteous people. He picks, he picks people. He speaks to individuals. He picks groups throughout history. He's been speaking and acting. The God of the Bible directs the course of history. If you do, do the studying, you look at the Bible's backstory, it should have never come to pass. People never should have rallied around certain books. There's never been a book that's been, more people have tried to stop and, and stamp out and distort. Bible's backstory, the people of God recognize his voice. You know, and I think about what does that say about God? It says God's not a God of just spreadsheets. God is a God of order, absolutely. There are firm reasons to believe that there's a God, but he's not exclusively a God of a spreadsheet. The Bible was not, okay, does it, this book fit this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, okay, it's in. This is ultimately about God calling a people. He's a relational God. 
and his sheep hear his voice, said Jesus. And here's the one that blows me away more than all. He's inviting us. Through his word, what's he doing? He's inviting us into the family. And he's inviting us rule breakers into the family. He's inviting us rule neglectors into the family. And in an objective thing, he sent his son into this world. And that's not just testified to in the Bible. Hopefully we'll have time to get to this in the series. There are other sources outside the Bible that spoke to that in that time at that place. That there was a man named Jesus who rose out of complete obscurity and changed the world forever. And that same Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate. And that same person was spoken of as God, as risen from the dead in the first century. There's a lot there. Let's seal this time in prayer and then I just have a couple housekeeping details. Father, thank you. Thank you for this gift. And we thank you not just for the words that it contains, but we thank you for even the process that you gave it to us. Thank you for revealing yourself not just through the words, but through the very process itself, that you're a God who speaks to every generation, that you're a God who cares, that you're a God who directs the course of history, that we can put our trust not just in one author, not just in two authors, not just in three, but we can put our trust in the testimony of literally millions of people. Thank you, God. Lord, I pray for um, those who are gathered here who I've, I've offended. Um, God, I'm, I'm sorry. You, you know my heart, and I pray that they hear yours beyond my words, that you will speak to them and, and that, if, that you'll, you'll nudge them towards taking maybe another look at this book and that your spirit would speak to them through the process and through the words. Lord, as we start this new week, first day of the week, Sunday, we... We offer you, those of us who already look to you and your word as our rule, as our ruler, we offer you our first and best. We offer you our strength. We offer you our hearts. We offer you our soul. We offer you our mind. We offer you the gifts that we brought. We pray that you'll consecrate them and use them for your good and perfect world, work all around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.